0: Very interesting when the last two years, we haven't had that many snowstorms, but they tend to come on Saturday night, which then means that I have to get up around, wake up around four o'clock to make sure I didn't receive a text message saying we need to discuss the possibility of changing the times or canceling or whatever. And so it's like, okay, Lord, you are the controller of the weather. Can you cause these storms to come on a Friday night? And that makes it a lot easier for the rest of us. But uh, so thank you for coming out. And uh, and I trust that the motivation was because you wanted to come and worship God and to hear from him. And so we're going to do that now. Uh, we're going to open the Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're continuing our series out of that book. And we're looking at the life of Jesus uh, and and seeing how he lived life that we can... Place our lives in pattern of His. Now, for those of you that are new, you're probably looking at that screen saying, "It's upside down." Except for the text, it seems upside down. Well, the reality is is that when Jesus came and He lived life here, uh, He turned life upside down in perspective of of what was thought to be God's intent. And so, especially when you read in places like in Matthew where he does the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he speaks to the different laws and regulations that people knew and about, understood about God. But he kept saying the key conjunction. He says, so you know it said this in the law, but I tell you. And, and so there's this greater revelation or this greater understanding that God looks beyond the letter of the law. He looks at the heart. And uh, And so, as we go into the book of of Luke, we are looking at the way Jesus lived, and then applying it to us. And so this isn't a typical, exegete of the text where we're going verse by verse, although we are continuing to use the text to guide us in that, these are excerpts from the book of Luke uh, between now and Easter Sunday where Luke is a crescendo of the resurrection, uh, which I am excited to get there. And so in Luke chapter 5, we're now in the area of the Sea of Galilee, the region of Galilee. And, uh, and so uh, we're going to be uh, picking up a story there, but before we do, I want to uh, mention uh, just a couple things that I heard when I was a junior high pastor at Hershey Free Church. A, a man that's not known very well, his name is Ravi Zacharias, um, Came to speak at our church, and, uh, and obviously you, you know about the man. So, uh, but Ravi came, and he validated my position more than, uh, than any other person ever has. He said this. He said, there is no more of a crucial time in a person's life and development, not only as an individual and their character, but in their faith, than 6th or 7th grade. And I was was like peaked up because I'm a junior high pastor. That's my area of expertise. And he went on to say the reason for that is that it's in those ages that you begin to identify your skills and your passions, and those skills and passions end up forming where you give your time and therefore who you spend your time with. And it was in the latter that he says that is where a person begins to take shape is the company they keep ends up being who they become like. And so in that, I was sitting there as a junior high pastor hearing it's like, so one of the most crucial things that I can do as a junior high pastor is making sure that the 7th grade, because I had 7th and 8th grade uh, primarily, is to make sure that we were connecting them to relationships that would guide them in a good direction. Now, It doesn't just stop there, does it? Because often things happen in our lives where we make transitions. So when you graduate from high school, you're no longer, typically speaking, around those that you had a relationship with. And so there's another reformation of who you hook your wagon to. And therefore, a lot of who you hook your wagon to in college or or the workplace, again, dictates a lot of what your values become, and who you become like. Then you graduate from college, and then you go into the workforce. And again, a lot of decisions often happen there. Generally speaking, we often choose a spouse uh, during some of those early seasons right out of college, or, or we choose new friends because our career takes us to a new location. And again, based on who we marry or who those relationships are, starts forming our values and therefore our, our behaviors and therefore our vision and purpose becomes aligned with the company we keep. So, relationships become formational for us in how we live, how we see the world, and what's important to us. Jesus was no different. He modeled for us what it looks like to do life with other people. And so we're going to, the, today and next week, look at that. Today are the ones he invited into his life and he did ministry with. And next week, we're going to look at those who didn't have the greatest reputation. In fact, were considered the worst of the worst. And he had, he spent time with them. And we're going to look at how do you do that and maintain a place of being where God wants you to be. So in other words, be doing that with a position of strength and influence versus becoming the influenced so our journey takes us to the region of Galilee I was just in Galilee this past May and so you can go ahead and throw that first picture up this was my first morning in Israel I am on a top of a hill in a a village called Migdal it's a kind of a fisherman's village and that is the sun rising over the Sea of Galilee so you're looking uh, straight east isn't that gorgeous So I had to get up at 5 a.m. to do that, uh, and that's not my typical mode of operation. I don't (laughs) normally get up that early, uh, but I just wanted to see that sunrise come up over the Sea of Galilee. It was incredible. The story that we're going to read today happens where this next picture is. Uh, So I'm standing on the northern edge of, of the Sea of Galilee, so you're looking back over the sea there, and that's about 13 miles in length. And uh, this the reason why we know this is the general area of where the story was today is this is very close to Capernaum, which is where uh, Peter and his family lived. It's where James and John and, and all these fishermen, they kind of came from that fisherman's village of Capernaum. And so this was a typical area that they would keep fishing boats to be able to launch out into the water. And so uh, now one thing you need to know is that Peter's kind of a, a uh, hero um, for a lot of the travelers of the day, and certainly in Christendom. And so fish is very popular to eat, but they've given fish a new name. They call it St. Peter's fish, and this is what I, I had. Um, so when I ordered fish and chips, I didn't expect to be, have it looking at me. Um, and, I, you know, I, I don't mind eating fish. I like fried fish, but I don't necessarily like fresh fish. They called this fried fish, so it was a little in between of what my expectations were. I, I was able to pick at it and get something off of that St. Peter's fish. but. Uh, Um, And and so anyway, so the story of Peter is pretty much legendary, even for the Jews, even though they reject the idea of Jesus. They make lots of money off these fish farms to raise St. Peter's fish. And and that's a tilapia uh, type of fish, and that's what they were catching uh, in the Sea of Galilee uh, through their nets. And so um, when you think of the terms of catching fish uh, by the droves, this is what they were going after. Uh, So you can go ahead and send it on to the picture. So now I'm on top of uh, Mount Erebal, which overlooks the Sea of Galilee, so you're seeing about about a third of it, but the northern third from on top of a mountain. And where this story takes place is in that, that uh, left northern left uh, portion along the shore is our story today. So let's go ahead and let's pick up in Luke chapter 5 uh, the story of what happens in uh, Luke here. It says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the, the people uh, were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there at the water's edge, uh, and there were fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down, taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, When Simon Peter saw this he fell at Jesus' knees and said, "Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man." For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So and so they so were James and John the sons of Zebedee who were Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, "Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people." So they pulled their boats up on shore, Left everything and followed him. So little description of what's going on here. So the way you would fish in those times, first century, is that you would at nighttime go and out al- near the shoreline, but in the shallows, where the water's, you know, not much deeper than our height, so, you know, eight to ten feet of depth, because at night, the fish would come into the shallows to feed, and so they would lay uh, throw their nets out, they would gather in the fish in those shallows during the, the nighttime. Now, the fish would feed in those shallows at night, because then they wouldn't be caught by the birds, which would feed on them during the day. And so this was a natural way of survival, if you will, for the fish, that they would feed in those shallows at night. And so you have uh, these fishermen that have fished all night, and they've caught nothing. Now, if, if you're a fisherman, you can probably relate that you go out, it's a great day to go fishing, you cast and you cast, and you cast, and you catch nothing. That's my experience more often than not when I go fishing. Uh, But these men had just had a rough night, and and so they are now on the shoreline. They are taking their nets out, and they're washing the nets off, and they're going to hang them out to dry. That was a necessary thing because the nets, if they were not washed and then laid out to dry, they would uh, spread out. They would end up rotting, and then They would have to buy new nets, and they they were very expensive in that time. So you've got these fishermen who are doing that. You need to understand that fishermen uh, in those days, just like today, required certain qualities uh, that make for being a fisherman, especially by trade. Um, So one of of those qualities is that fishermen had to be pretty courageous uh, in the Sea of Galilee because of the way it was shaped when I showed you that picture of being on the northern end, and you could see 13 miles back, both sides of the Sea of Galilee are surrounded by large mountains, and yet at the southern end is a gap, and when winds would come up, it would shoot through the gap and be enveloped in that like a bowl effect, and it would create large waves on the Sea of Galilee, eight to ten feet, and so massive waves that would easily sink a small fishing boat that these men were using. And so it required courage to do such an occupation because it was perilous. And, and you also had to be courageous because it involved regular disappointment. Uh, not every night was a successful night. And so, in fact, uh, just a couple years ago, they, they actually shut down fishing in the Sea of Galilee because they were, it had been overfished and they were, they were struggling with it. And apparently, Galilee's had that history where they, for seasons of time, the fish need to recover because it, it gets overfished because it's one of the few freshwater places where fish thrive in that region of the world. Fishermen also had to be hard workers. Uh, they, they were not the lazy type because it was a lot of effort at night. It also required teamwork, uh, so multiple boats working together to push the fish into the middle and casting nets, and so that was a, a significant part of it, was working as a team. And and uh, true to that, then working as a team, there is an aspect of fishermen tails, Uh if you've ever been around somebody who fishes, they, they'll, all, they'll often say, uh, well, I had one on my line that was this big, right? And, 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 uh, and so they're comparing stories. Well, imagine fishermen in those days, they, they had the same qualities, and how do we know that? Study the rest of the book of Luke, and you'll see how they regularly compare themselves to each other, trying to say they're the greatest. And uh, so you see those qualities even in the early day fishermen at that time. But ultimately, I would say the greatest quality to the fishermen of those days is it does require faith. When you go out into a boat at night and you're going to fish, you cannot see what you're Putting your nets into it's dark, and so you're throwing your nets out, hoping that there's fish. Your education tells you that there's going to be fish there, but not always is it going to happen. And so, by faith, they throw out into something that where they cannot see, but they are certainly hoping for it. You know, recognize the definition that's found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that defines faith as being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. And fishing is that quality. You cannot see down into the depths of the water, but yet you hope for what is there. You know it's there, but you, and you're certain of it, but, you, but yet hope is what's going to have to prevail because you're not guaranteed that that's going to happen in that moment. And so those are the quality of these fishermen. Now, in their society, they weren't received very well. They were considered one of the lower trades, along with shepherds, And yet, those are the qualities and the types of people that tend to get edified and built up or esteemed in Scripture are shepherds and fishermen. And yet, that's the kind of people that they were in society, did not always accept them in that manner as being esteemed or respected. And so you have Jesus showing up here on the scene. This is early on. In the context of his ministry. So you have Jesus who was born in Nazareth, I mean, uh, Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, and was just a carpenter's son. And then everything changed when he went out to the wilderness to this, the river Jordan and was baptized. And at that moment, when he came out of the water, a voice from heaven said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. His identity shifted in that moment in the eyes of society. No longer is he Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph. He's now that guy that was baptized and the voice from heaven saying, this is my son. And then to go further, we start hearing rumors, not only of this voice from heaven that, that validated him as a son, but also you're hearing stories that he's doing miracles and he's doing incredible things in and around the region of Galilee. So his reputation has grown significantly. But yet Jesus chooses to not go it alone. He didn't just go on a tour showing his divine qualities and then letting people just follow him singly. He had a plan that said, this is better done with others. This is better done not by myself, but doing so with others. And so if that is the strategy of God, how did he go about inviting them? And so you got this uh, situation where he shows up along the shore of Galilee, the fishermen are done, they're cleaning their nets, and a crowd has showed up, and Jesus is teaching them. And, and the reason for the crowd is because Jesus is already performed several miracles. He has already taught authoritatively, and and he's already uh, done some crazy things, not only in Galilee, but just a little ways away in his hometown in Nazareth. So all of this is adding to a fanfare, if you will, of people being intrigued by this man. But now Jesus, up to this point, primarily has not had a consistent group of people around him. He's had different ones following him, but nothing consistent. So he comes to the shoreline that day, and he's teaching. And the the crowds are getting so significant that he decides that he will do better to get in the boat and go out a little bit from the shore so that he can teach and, and people won't crowd right up to him, and then he can be heard. Creates a natural amphitheater. And again, on the northern side of Galilee... The winds are running from south to north, and so your voice would carry off the lake and be heard in great distances off the shoreline. And so this allowed a natural effect of being heard when he got out into the boat to speak. But now, in this account, there's some things to take notice of here. Jesus is, gonna, is about to select some followers to follow with him. But what we need to understand is this is a, a different story than what happens in Matthew and Mark. In fact, it happens after Matthew and Mark's account of when Jesus said to the disciples, in particularly the core four, so Peter and Andrew, brothers, James and John, brothers, those core four, if you read in Matthew and Mark, were invited to go follow Jesus to go fish for men. But there's something different about the accounts found in Matthew and Mark versus what's found in Luke that gives us some significant clues as to how Jesus went about asking and recruiting his followers. So first of all, in the Luke account, they were finished fishing. They were already washing their nets. But in Matthew and Mark, they were finished. Fishing already out in the water. In fact, it says that Jesus was walking along the shoreline, takes notice of the fish, the fishermen out in the boats, and yells out to them, "Come and 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 hear from me, and I will make you fishers of men." So they come in from having fished. In Luke's account, Jesus was speaking to a crowd. He wasn't walking along the shore by himself. He's speaking to a crowd at this moment. And, 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 there, and then asked to go out into the water. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus was by himself speaking to a group of disciples. In, in Luke's account, you have this great catch of fish that happens. After they've gone from cleaning their nets to putting their nets back into the water, going out and fishing, and then having all this catch of fish, and then Jesus says, from now on, you will become fishers of men. Now, why is it so important for me to highlight that these are two different occasions? The reality is this. This means that the disciples had already been on a short-term mission trip with Jesus. Think about that. This moment that we're reading about in Luke, where Jesus is teaching a group of people, and the disciples are already done uh, fishing for the day, and he tells them to go back out, catch fish. They catch this load of fish. They come back in, and you have this moment where Jesus says, from now on, you're going to fish for men. This is different from the other occasion. So these disciples who are fishing, had already done ministry for a brief period of time, and I call it a short-term mission trip, and having gone to parts around Galilee with him. And you get those accounts in Matthew and Mark, where they went in different places. But clearly, they'd come back to their occupation as fishermen. So Jesus was not a stranger to them. Jesus had already performed miracles in front of them. They had already spent time with him, hearing his teaching. And now they are back fishing, and, and probably they came back with Jesus there. A crowd shows up because they've been doing all kinds of ministry in the area, and, and the fishermen say, oh, this is an opportunity to go back out and fish, right? So they'd already had a season of time with Jesus. Now they're back out doing what they had known throughout their lives. Because they had already... Because they would already spent time with Jesus doing ministry. You also see how they address him in this Luke text. When when Jesus says uh, to them to to go out into the water, you see this response in verse 5. It says, Master, we've already worked hard all night long and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. That's somebody talking with personal knowledge. Master, leader, already superior to me, I will do this because you say so. Now, this is significant because this required that they had to go against all the training that they had received throughout their entire career as fishermen to go and do what he did. It said to do because he said, it's now daytime, go out into the deep part of the lake and draw your, and and throw out your nets. The nets were only meant to go about three to five feet deep into the water. Now he's sending them out into the deep part of the water during the daytime when the fish are down, and because by the way, the Sea of Galilee averages 84 feet of depth. So the fish were way down deep, and they're throwing out nets that are meant to handle the shallows. So they go out. Okay, I'm supposed to go out in the daylight. This is going to look weird to all of our friends who are fishermen. Look at Peter and Andrew. Look at James and John. They're going back out to fish. It's daytime. And they're going out to the middle of the lake. Why would you do that? But yet, Peter says, Master, because you say so, we'll do it. So trust had already been earned. They had already seen that, Jesus does crazy things that, that aren't normal, and they saw him as superior, so they were willing to do what he asked them to do. So they go out, and they do the unlikely. Then now you have the moment that, that happens with the fish. So in verse 6, it says, so when they went and did this, they, they, they went out, they threw their nets, for the shallow nets, out into deep waters in the daytime, and then a miracle happens, that they knew was impossible, except for something divine. Such a large number of fish were caught that they were breaking their nets, called the other boat over, loaded that boat as well, that both boats were so full they began to sink. Nothing like that had ever been seen before. And let alone in the daylight, in the depths of the sea, it just doesn't make sense. The tools they were using were not meant for the deep. They were meant for the shallows. And so they realize something defined has happened. In fact, verse 6, it says, astonished, astonished that they saw such a great number of fish. So they signaled their partners. They come in. Simon Peter saw this. He fell to his knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Now, what does that tell you about what, Peter realizes in that moment. It tells you that he saw Jesus as divine. Because if it was just a mere man who is leader, master, then you're you're, you're not going to say, Get away from me, you're holy, and I am a sinner. You are looking at this saying, Hey, this is a divine person that is holy and, and not filled with sin, and I am a sinner. I should not be with you. That's a huge revelation. But this came because something that could only be divine happened, and that's how these fishermen saw it. A divine moment just happened, so therefore this is somebody we need to stay uh, away from because we are sinners. We know who we are, and we now know who he is for sure. But then Jesus starts with this. He says, I declare you worthy. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I want you to draw near to me. Don't be afraid. I want you to draw near to me because I'm going to use you in a way you've never been used before. Your path and purpose in life has been as a fisherman, providing for your families. I am about to make you a fisher of people. Now, this is significant because now they've, up to this point, they had already been told, hey, I'm going to show you how to fish for people. Because if you go and read in Matthew and Mark, what Jesus says to them is that they were already, they were out in the boats fishing in Matthew and Mark. And he said, he calls them in and says, hey, I'm going to show you how to fish for people. That's all he does. So they go and they fish for people. He, they see what Jesus does. But here, in this invitation, in verse 10, he says something different. He says, don't be afraid. So, in other words, don't be afraid of my holiness in light of your sinfulness. From now on, which is not a statement in the other text, from now on, you will fish for people. The other request in Matthew and Mark is, I'm going to show you how to fish for people. So now they've already experienced that. They did the short-term trip with Jesus. He knows who they are, and they know him. And now the invitation is, we're going to go permanent with this. From now on, you will be fishing for people. The result is this. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed them. He pulled, They pulled everything, and they left everything and followed them. They gave it up. They said, this is going to be my new vision. This is going to be my new purpose. I'm going to hitch my wagon to Jesus. It's no small thing. I am going to change what I do. Because up to this point, these men are generational fishermen. Capernaum is a fishing village. That's where they're from. That's all they knew. They had been taught this from when they were young. And now somebody undid all their training that they had ever learned and showed a miracle and says, from now on, you're not going to do what you've spent your whole life doing. You are going to fish for people. Now in this, you see the combination. Why then is Jesus inviting this group of people. When you study the the book, the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you think, who would be, if you didn't know the story of those four Gospels, who would be the ones that that God would choose to be His core followers as part of changing the entire world? Well, most people in that day would have probably said, well, it's got to be the Pharisees. Because they're the ones that are most aligned with the law. They're the ones that are most aligned with being righteous and holy. They're going to be the ones that likely God would choose to create a core team with to change the world. But when you study what happened between Jesus and the Pharisees, there was an impediment with the Pharisees in being able to follow after Jesus. And it was pride. It was that they saw themselves as already having arrived as righteous. They didn't need to follow somebody else. Everybody should follow them. And so in their understanding of the character of themselves, they actually then oversold themselves and undersold the actual Messiah that they've been preparing to follow. And so when you consider what made the fishermen in particular, the right choice is that they were humble enough to realize there was somebody greater among them. They were humble enough to realize there was somebody greater among them. They were also humble enough to realize that they were not fully arrived in the character of their life, that they needed something greater. See, the Pharisees thought they'd arrived. They were at the end. They were at the pinnacle. There was nothing else To have in life they were it and everybody should follow them problem is is they hadn't arrived some of them started seeing who Jesus was and they humbled themselves and so some of the Pharisees ended up becoming followers of Jesus but none of them were his core none of them were his core they were fishermen and tax collectors fishermen and tax collectors were the choices Of Jesus people who knew that they were sinners people who knew that they hadn't arrived people who knew that they needed to be around something greater people who knew that needed to grow in their character people who knew that their journey was still beginning for all those who thought that they had it all and that they were arrived and they had no needs those were the ones that Jesus couldn't use he needed those who understood their place So how do we learn from this text and apply to us? I would think that if there was anybody in the history of humanity that could have gone alone to accomplish great things, it would have been Jesus. Left to himself, he could have probably accomplished a tremendous movement that would have changed the world. But instead, he chose something different. He chose a team, a core of people by which he would invest fully in, and then they, then having received fully, could then fully invest in others. So what do we learn from this? Is that if Jesus, being Jesus, said it's not good to be alone, then why should we? So our charge from Jesus is, is we're not meant to go it alone. Each of us are designed to need to be around others who are going to push us forward and charge in us the need to pursue greatness, the need to pursue greater standing between what God would have of us going forward, that we're not settling for the now, but realizing that there's more to our character, there's more that God wants to accomplish in us so that he can accomplish through us his great work. So the easiest first thing to take is don't go it alone. Show me an individual who claims to be a Christian but is alone. They are no better than a boat that has no engine, sitting out on a lake. They have nobody they are working with that is moving them along. They are just idle. People that say, I don't need the church to be a follower of Jesus, doesn't understand Jesus. Jesus. Jesus never intended for anybody to go at this alone. We also then, it's not just going it with other people, but it's in particular people who have the same vision and purpose. You see, the disciples realized that that this wasn't going to be about their purposes. This is going to be about the purpose of Christ. See, there are plenty of people that I know that are moralistic, that you could develop friendships with. But they may not necessarily move you forward. Because the object isn't so that you can become something great just for, your, for that end. It's no, God wants to do something great in you so that he can use you to, to bring about goodness and things in the lives of other people. In other words, sowing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in other people. And when they see your life being changed on a daily basis, then that is inspiring. But this doesn't happen if you're just saying, I'm going to hide out in a house and just keep my faith private. I'm not going to let anybody speak into me. I'm not going to speak into anybody else. So we're not only meant to not go it alone, but to, to do with others. But we should do it hitching our wagons to people who are going in the direction that is appropriate. That is pursuing Jesus as the primary aim of their life. Which means you need to know who you're hooking your wagon to. You can't just hook your wagon to somebody you respect. You need to hook your wagon to somebody that says, they're pursuing Jesus, and that's what I want with my life. Which leads to my third point. It's not just about somebody who might share your vision, because you could probably even find in this church people who say, I love Jesus. I honor Jesus in the way I live. But they don't necessarily passionately pursue Jesus say, Jesus, how am I going to be used of you in the lives of other people? God, use me. You see, Jesus was looking not only to not go it alone, and yes, choosing people who are willing to align with the vision of God and the purposes of God, but lastly, he was choosing people who are willing to go all in. All in. They left everything so that from now on their purposes were different. They left everything so that from now on purposes were different. And then as you see how Jesus interacted with people throughout the book of Luke, you'll notice that people would come to him saying, I'll follow you. And then he'd say, are you willing to give up this? And some were, and some were not. So when we hook our wagon, our relational uh, lives to another individual. We should be choosing people that have that vision, yes, that say, I am here to serve the purposes of God. I want to become like Jesus in the way he lived, but I also want to serve and be used of Jesus in the lives of other people. That is a person that you want to hook your wagon to and align with, and then they are all in together. Now, for some of you, That might be because you're in need as in you've never really been around somebody that has passionately pursued Jesus. And you need to get around somebody who does. But for those of us that maybe have been pursuing Jesus for a while, I'm in much need of having somebody investing in my life as they are. So when I moved here in 2011, I lost a lot of my connections that were were sharpening me as a follower of Jesus. And so I had to pray say, God, give me some people that will invest in my life. And I can tell you, God's placed so many people in my life. And as I see people that are pursuing Jesus, I get near them. Even as a pastor, I say, if I see somebody who loves Jesus, I try to spend as much time with them. If I know that they're loving Jesus and they're pursuing Jesus and serving Jesus, I get near them because it inspires me. But then I hope that I'm doing the same because sometimes that calling, don't go it alone, means I need to intentionally choose somebody to come alongside me because they're in need of it as well. And so this, there's a both and, the leader and the, and the learner. But sometimes the leader is going to learn from the learner as much as the learner is learning from the leader. The key is God intends, for you to not go it alone, to go so with the same vision and to go all in, not partial. And then you'll discover the fullness of God. The cool thing about having these people on stage here earlier for Tyler's commissioning is that one of the people that I've had the privilege of investing in was Phil True, who was standing here behind Tyler. Tyler is in a small group with Phil True. Phil was in my youth ministry as a junior high student. And then he was in my youth ministry at a different church as a senior high student. And then somehow he was sucker enough to become a person in the church that I'm a senior pastor enough. And it's like, so I've known him my whole life. But here's the cool thing. After years of investing in him and being frustrated many times, now he's investing in people that are on my team. And he's part, he is truly a co-laborer with me. And that's the beauty of when somebody is allowing others to impact their life, eventually it becomes mutual where you don't even know who's helping who because you're both sharpening each other going forward. So if you want your faith vibrant, don't Go it alone. Choose somebody who has a vision to serve Jesus and align yourself with them and pursue Jesus together, going all in. Now, you may have come out of your door this morning having uh, uh, braved the the road systems and so on, you may not have come being charged with the idea of don't be alone. And if you came alone today, we invite you to participate in signing up for a life group or an ABF and find life with others here, because we don't intend for you to just show up and sit in these chairs and leave. Find other people that you can mutually be blessed by. Because I believe God will richly reward that and it will change your life and you'll not regret it. Let's pray. So Jesus, I just say thank you for the many friends that you've put in my life that have changed me and charged me even now as I have several people that are investing in me. Two in particular that spend uh, two hours a month just speaking into my life. I say thank you for them. And God, I, I am a better man because of it. And it blesses me. But Lord, I just ask that you would help me bless them. And God, I ask for those who are here that might be alone in the journey, that God, they would be motivated enough to step up and become intentional. If they are a mature follower of you, that maybe they would invite somebody that needs that, their maturity and their, and their knowledge of you to, to receive from them. But also, Lord, that you can pour into them in return from the learner to the leader. So God, I just thank you for the model that your son Jesus provided, that we don't have to go it alone, but we can do so as part of the body of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for that model. Amen. You know, that last line is an opportunity. For those of you that are pursuing Jesus, loving Jesus, but you know, you haven't invested in somebody. This is an invitation to begin to talk to God and say, you know, God, who who in my life, who in my oikos, that relational world, can I invest in more intentionally to sow seeds of God's goodness in them more deeply? And then even experience mutual benefit in that and begin to pray that way. Or maybe you're in a place where it's like, I don't know anybody. I would encourage you, uh, our website has a list of our staff, and one of those people on our team is Rick Jolene who is in charge of our life groups here at the church, he would be glad to connect you to a life group here where you can get connected to those who might help you, your life be built from the ground up. You can also come up front. We have people underneath the cross over here. would Be glad to pray with you and even connect you to some of those things possibly as well. But lastly, we want to celebrate God here in this church, and, and your story will help do that. And so as you go out these doors today, would you take time to write your story on, on one of those cards and place on that, on that board that we can be a part of sharing that story on Sunday evening, the 27th? Or if you don't have time to do it now, you can send that story via email to LEFC.net. and God will read it when it comes in. And, uh, and that's supposed to be funny. Come on. <laughs> so I know you guys are concerned about going out on the roads, but uh, may God's blessing be upon you as you go out there and drive safely, but be, let this ponder in your heart, God, who in my life am I letting sharpen me, and who in my life can I sharpen? Let that be your prayer. God bless and be safe as you go.